2: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get
0: your podcasts. Partly Cloudy Skies, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a conversation about the intersection of tech and activism.
3: The young people, what they have started, we can carry further We can scale, that's tech's favorite word, we can scale through technology. We really have got to look at the black technologists that are building tools and platforms that we can get behind. I think this Mm -hmm. is a moment like none other when people are, it's now in the consciousness of people to be looking for what black founder or what black company can we be supporting.
0: Our week long series after the protests, what's next Atlanta continues in just a moment. But now an update regarding the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. Greg McMichael, Travis McMichael, and William Bryan appeared via video for a preliminary hearing today. The McMichaels are charged with felony murder and aggravated assault. Bryan faces a felony murder and criminal intent to commit false imprisonment charge. Now, during the hearing, GBI Special Agent Rick Dial stated the following, and we should note it does contain a racial slur.
2: Can you please articulate for the court
4: What Mr. Bryan said he heard Travis McMichael say prior to police arriving after
2: the fatal shooting. Yes, um, Mr. Bryan said that after the shooting took place, before police arrival, while Mr. Aubrey was on the ground, that he heard Travis Michael make the statement.
0: Now, WABE News will have more later today during All Things Considered hosted by Jim Burris. And now for the latest information as it relates to the coronavirus here in Georgia. There are 48,894 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 2,123 and there are 8,419 hospitalized. That's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health at the time of this broadcast. And finally, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom says she will establish a commission to oversee the city's use of force police policies. Now, Bottoms announced her decision in a tweet last night. This came after former President Barack Obama in a town hall address yesterday called on local officials to take action.
4: So today I am urging every mayor in this country to review your use of force policies with members of your community and commit to report on planned reforms. What are the specific steps you can take?
0: Also, a statement from former President and Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter was issued yesterday. It reads in part, quote, Our hearts are with the victims' families and all who feel hopeless in the face of pervasive racial discrimination and outright cruelty. We need a government as good as its people, and we are better than this. Close quote. And again, that coming from former President and Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter. Closer Look returns in just a moment. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice friend P R. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, Snap, and Apple. We all know those names, and they are in the tech space. And they've all publicly offered commentary related to the current nationwide protest taking place. In some instances, companies are donating money towards civil and human rights organizations. And then this week on Wired.com, there's a piece authored by Arian Marshall and Ariel Pardez. It's called tech companies denounce racism will silicon valley change. The killing of George Floyd elicited corporate outrage and some donations, but well-intentioned rhetoric has not always been followed by meaningful action," close quote. And I invite you all to check out that piece as this week's series continues. After the protests, what's next, Atlanta? Well, joining me now to talk about all of this in the tech space is Atlanta tech entrepreneur, Jewel Burke-Solomon. She's been on this program before. She's also head of Google for Startups for the U.S. and managing partner of Collab Capital. Also joined by Justin Dawkins, managing partner at Collab Capital and co-founder of Goody Nation. Not Goody Mob, but Goody Nation. Also Barry Givens, managing director at TechStars and managing partner at Collab Capital as well. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank,
3: Thank you me. for having us. Before Good we stuff.
0: get into our conversation, uh, I want to give you all to take a moment and reflect on what has been taking place, not only here in Atlanta, all over the world, and Jewel, I'll start with you. Through your lens, what are you seeing?
3: I am seeing I'm seeing a pivotal moment and opportunity for us as a nation to really recognize what happens when you have the compounding pain of a people and you have what's happened with coronavirus and the fact that we have 42 million people that are unemployed and you have folks in particular in the city of Atlanta that were already dealing with the inequities that we see Um, with us being, you know, the top city in the country for um, this huge wealth inequality. And you put the coronavirus on top of that. Mm -hmm. And then you put the visuals of us seeing us being murdered at the hands of people that are supposed to be in authority. Um, All of those things together creates the moment that we're in right now. I think there's a, a huge tie between all of it. And um, we are seeing what happens when people are, are tired and are fed up. And I think that is kind of what we're living in and watching right now.
0: Justin?
4: I think um, what we're seeing is, I think opportunity is a great word. Um, I think in order to adequately heal and start the healing process, in a, in a real way, we have to identify the moment. We have to recognize um, and, and not continue to impose um, prior beliefs around what should be happening in this moment. You know what the rule book uh, continues to say should happen and how you should do things. I think em- empathy is required, and I think that's what I'm, I'm thankful for. And uh, what we see right now is this um, this showing this visible showing of empathy and folks really starting to understand and I think the covid-19 slowed the world down just enough um unfortunately to ensure that everybody saw this moment mm-hmm. and and we we witnessed it almost collectively together and I think that had a huge is having a huge impact on the processing of it all the world is a little slower because there's you know, unemployment. There's just jobs slow. Economies growth is slowing. All these things have um, tapered just enough to where the the cries and the and the the, the loud the loud voices, the, the once quiet voices, are are starting to be heard. And and I think the empathy is showing. And I think there's an opportunity um, to really start to to break apart the system and, and and start to see how we can build new systems.
2: Barry. Yeah, so I want to take this opportunity to talk about what the young people have done. Um, you know, I, I don't always agree with the tactics. Um, but for some reason, you know, this is the one that woke people up, right? And I think it was because these young people got fed up. They, you know, they weren't born into the time a lot of us are born into. Um, and they just got fed up. And when they decided to speak up using the voice that they had and the tools that they had, you know, some of them peacefully did it. Some of them had bricks because they didn't know how to channel that energy. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you think about it, Ahmaud Aubrey was killed a couple of weeks ago. It came the news came out a couple of weeks ago and none of this happened. Right. And so it was this level of energy that our young people put into starting these protests and really getting us off off of our butts um, to really bringing white people to the, the front of this thing and saying, you guys have to listen to us. Like, this isn't a, our problem, this is a racism problem. and It affects our entire country. And I think now getting into the opportunity side of it, it is up for us to follow the lead of our young people and say, hey, you guys woke, you guys woke people up and we have the power and the reach the capital and everything else to actually make something of the work that they've already put in. Uh, And so I think that's the opportunity that we're seeing right now. We have to step up to the plate and not let our young people down.
0: Which brings me to this earlier in the week during a conversation with area professors about all of this. And I asked about where the next wave of leadership would come from. And here's what Emory University's professor Singa Burton said.
5: I think the leadership is going to come from the young people. It always comes from the young people. That are training now, that are out in the protests, and they have the have the the right hearts and the right minds, and mm-hmm. have the information behind them. And I think a lot of the leadership is going to come out of the tech community. Honestly, I'm not saying that we don't have. You know, I believe in humanistic inquiry. You know, I'm a professor of film and media. Why the tech I, industry?
0: That's very interesting. Mm-hmm.
5: Because the tech industry, in my mind, is where you get the most movement. You're able to reach the largest number of people, mm-hmm. and so many young people live in that space. Like for us, you know, people in our age group. You know, we do it all. We get to pay. We still subscribe to the paper. We still watch television. You know, we're doing all of these things. But young people live exclusively in the tech world. And so I think that they have very interesting ways of connecting people, very interesting ways of organizing folks. If we can get away from this misinformation, you know, that Mark Zuckerberg is committed to supporting. Um, while you have the the gentleman over at Twitter who's like, ah, we got to start doing something because this is getting out of hand. So you're going to see that that war is the next war, right? The battle over information. Um, If we win that, then I think that you can use um, technology and activism uh, together in order to create the change that these young folks need to see um, and be a part of as we go forward uh, while we do what we've been doing and hopefully do it better.
0: Jewel? I'll let you go first. You heard what Professor Burton said, technology and activism at that intersection. What'd you make of that?
3: I agree. I agree. I think that the young people, to Barry's point, what they have started, we can carry further. We can scale. That's Tech's favorite word. We can scale through technology. Um, The one point that I would add to that is we really have got to look at the black technologists that are building uh, tools and platforms that we can get behind. I think this Mm -hmm. is a moment like none other, when people are, it's now in the consciousness of people to be looking for what black founder or what black company can we be supporting. And so that's the challenge that I would uh, bring to everyone is not just looking at how do we mobilize on Instagram or Twitter, but how do we leverage the platforms that are being built by the young black innovators uh, mm-hmm. coming up right now,
0: Justin. The intersection of technology and activism and leadership.
4: Yeah, I, um, I'll kind of orient to quit this my response a little differently. I think um, Jewel brought up a great point about scale. Um, one of the things around information and I, a part of the the last snippet that you shared uh, around um, the war, you know, war for information and really the truth behind information. It's, it's really around to me a conversation around equity around data and and who owns it and who's able to process it and 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 to go a step further who's writing the rules and the laws based on the data I think is actually where the opportunity is and and uh to 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 Jules point around getting around platforms that are allowing us to organize use data in a more effective and impactful way mm-hmm. I believe is actually, the key to enabling these this movements and these things to go further. And so it's, yes, it's the access to the data to make it actionable information, but the people behind that, who owns it and who's actually helping to shape and discern from the data real information, I think is, is critically important as well.
2: Barry? Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely think that leadership has to come from technology, but I don't think we are the only leaders. I think that we've always had leaders in our community um, from, from politics to the, the entertainers, to um, you know, people in, that are in high level positions at corporations. I think where the, the problem is that the young technology, when I say young, I, I'm speaking of kind of our age, you know, the, the 30 to 40 year old um, and even younger, but we're in this position where we've been building you know, to the point that um, that you mentioned earlier, there are a lot of technologists that have companies that have been running for four or five years that they have built to solve these problems. And I think that the big issue is that the technology leader hasn't been in the room. Hmm. And because technology, as Jewel mentioned, and Justin, like technology is meant to scale and be efficient. That's why the companies can make so much money is because they do those two things. And by not having technology leaders in the room, you lose that scale and you lose that efficiency that technology brings to the table. And I sit in so many of these um, meetings. <clears throat> we had one at the, the gathering spot the other night, and you have all of these community leaders in a room, and they throw out all these ideas, like, oh, we just built an app that did this, or, like, they have the ideas. They know that technology is the key to being effective. But if we're not in the room, which luckily we are now, um, Mm -hmm. but if we're not in the room, then they don't even know how to go about building those things. But luckily we have a bunch of black entrepreneurs that have already built many of these tools and now it's just about connecting and funding these black entrepreneurs that are already building. Um, And so by bringing the technology leaders into the room, I think we'll be able to make that connection between all the other different nodes in the black community and technology will be that glue that brings it all together that allows us to actually do something impactful.
0: So based on what you all just said, and I want to be fair and honest, because my next question was going to be to talk about the current leadership structure for many of these big tech names. But you all are saying, let's not, From and correct me if I'm wrong, from what I've been hearing or just heard, you all saying, well, let's look at these other tech firms that may not be household names that have black leadership. Is that what you're saying? Because I was going to say, you know, the problem is with some of these big tech firms, they lack diversity at the leadership. And then they also lack, one could argue, diversity in thought. So if they're taking the lead of issues about racism and other isms, that could be met with the side eye because someone could say, well, look inside your own house first. But perhaps that question I shouldn't even we shouldn't even tackle because you're saying, hey, there are other tech firms already in this space. That are working on this and that's where we need to look for the leadership and to get get ahead of this is that what y'all saying
2: 100 percent. and i think it all falls into what do you define as a leader just because somebody has a multi-billion dollar corporation doesn't mean that they're a leader a lot of it could have been luck you know i mean a lot of people have had great ideas and they get the the right investment or they they walk into the right coffee shop and it was 10 other people that had that same idea so that doesn't make them a leader that just means that they had success. And so I think what happens is, especially in the black community, a lot of the people that are really leading, the only way to get them funded, to turn them into a household name is to walk through the doors of many of those white funding organizations. So those venture capital funds. But if I walk into a venture capital fund and I have a solution for my community and I'm being a leader by sacrificing my, you know, my, uh, my cushy corporate job to go and build this thing for my community. And then I'm depending on a, a, a white firm that doesn't have one black person that works there to write me a check to be able to bring this thing to life. Like those are the real leaders. The problem is that society has just quieted those those leaders that are building the, import, the really important things. Like the, the Ubers and the scooter companies and all these things that are being funded, those aren't important. Like we were walking, we were doing just fine. Like, yeah, they make life more efficient, but they're not substantially important to the progress we need to make. And the people that are trying to make the progress have been quieted by, through the use of, or through the lack of funding. And so those leaders are the ones we need to bring up. Um, and I mean, we can, we can list them off here. You have, you know, companies like um, Empowered here in Atlanta that's really on the forefront of um, voting and legislation. Same thing with Civic Eagle. Um, empowering lobbyists to to go out and stay connected with the things that are going on in their community. Um, Legal Equalizer um, built a, a really cool um, application for people when they get pulled over to be able to immediately record, call a lawyer, and notate everything that's happening so they can be safe. Um, courtroom Five allowing you to to learn how to be your own lawyer if you don't if you can't afford and you don't trust the public defender. We have people on the front lines building these things and we have to support them and bring them to the forefront.
0: Well, the problem is, and I'll let Jewel and Justin also weigh in, because Barry, those tech firms you just listed, they sound awesome. They sound great. I've never heard of them (laughs) and I know I'm not alone. So then how do we get those firms, those companies, as Curtis Mayfield will say, got to get them to the people, Jewel?
3: Yeah, I mean, not to do a quick commercial, but this is exactly why we built Collab Capital to make the connection between these incredible innovators. Well, that's why and- you're on the show
0: to promote. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um,
3: but yes, this is exactly why we built. We we saw a need in the market for the connections between these innovators, the right capital to fuel their growth and the influencers, the people that can spread the message more quickly. So that's literally what we're doing is finding the best black innovators that are building companies that are solving real problems and making connections and making sure that they have the resources that they need to push these solutions forward.
0: I want to dissect a little bit further. And Justin, since you're a managing partner as well, take that a little bit further for our listeners. You know, Jewel just mentioned this firm that collab capital and someone saying okay now what's the next step how do i get involved what do i need to do who is this for
4: all great yeah all great questions and 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 we love to talk about uh collab uh we we're definitely aware and mindful of the times and and we try to be sensitive to the the pain that people are experiencing um but we're we we believe that we've we started the work to do this work years ago uh we we recognize that that this is a moment in time where things are are highlight highlighted and and emphasized rightfully and justly. Um, so um, but we're working on a model and we've been we pulled together um, some amazing concepts and kind of pulled them and said, you know, what if we actually um, and this is more of a yes and idea, not an or, what if we actually uh, while dismantling old systems, built mm-hmm. new ones and and actually started to leverage the financial capital that that our communities have generated and putting in making that more efficient and put, you know efficient and putting that to good use. And, but also this thing called social capital, like what if we learned and created new ways uh, for those that have access to, to business opportunities and business development, uh, large audiences and, and followers, what if we actually put that social capital to work as well and use that as mm-hmm. a vehicle and as a mechanism to invest in these innovative businesses. And so when we started to ask ourselves these questions uh, the result was collab capital and in all of this the wraparound services support and, and activation of social capital, which is critical mm-hmm. uh, to the growth of any business. So we're, we we have the viral mechanism, as they say, in the tech world um, built into our, our financing model and our capitalization model.
0: Here's a question that I've been asking everyone this week. I'm going to modify it a little bit because I've been asking what's next for Atlanta? Do uh, maybe following or even during these current protests, I'm going to modify that a little bit and say, what's next for Atlanta's tech space, Atlanta's tech community in all of this to move the issues from the issues to actionable outcomes. I've been saying that a lot this week. So Jewel, I'll start with you.
3: I think what's next is for us to stand up as the leaders. Many of us in the tech community have been quiet and we just work on you know, our products and we don't necessarily want to speak up and say what we're working on. But now is a time for us to stand up and say, hey, we've been doing this work for many years. It's not new. We are not just pushing something out because we're being responsive to what's happening. We actually have already built the infrastructure. We've already built the solutions. Now it's time for you that now are awakened and, and have a desire to be supportive and to be helpful, to actually back the things that have already been built. And so we invite people to do that. I think it's an, Atlanta has a unique responsibility and positioning to be the leader on this particular issue around how do we um, leverage technology to solve these big, uh, hairy problems. So I think if we stand up and say, hey, we, we, we've thought about this, we know what the issues are, and we have solutions to these issues, Join us, follow us. You don't always have to reinvent the wheel. Um, I think we, we are standing up in that position and we're ready to lead in this uh, in this fight.
0: So Jewel, let so, me ask you this. Sorry, yeah. my apologies for interrupting. Who do you take that message to? Is it elected officials? Is it the General Assembly? You know, is it area colleges and universities? Who who do you take this message to to say, look, we're here and this is what we can provide?
3: I think it's all of those people you just named. We we talk a lot in technology about ecosystems, and the reality of an ecosystem is that it takes people from government, it takes people from the higher education community, um, and even lower, you know, elementary, middle, high school, um, because you have to build the pipeline of the next generation of leaders. It takes people from corporations, and it takes the uh, the capital community, and it takes the technologists and innovators. So it's in order for any ecosystem to work, you have to have all of those components. Um, And so we're trying to speak to as many of those people as we can, because all of these places are connected and there has to be participation across the board.
0: Barry, what's next in Atlanta's tech space community to address the social issues and everything else that's taking place right now?
2: Um, I'll start with just ditto and what Jewel said. It's, um, for, for too long, we've been quiet. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I think we're the glue and we're the piece that needs to step up. Um, I think we are that that last piece to the puzzle to get in the room with the mayor and, you know, with our our, our um, local entertainment influencers, with our educators and our these HBCUs we have here. Like we have every single piece here in Atlanta to solve these problems and. Um, As I started to step into some of these meetings and these roles, the the thing that I saw most of there was there wasn't a lot of cohesion, Mm -hmm. and I think it was because we need this technology portion of it to actually execute and bring that cohesion to a lot of these ideas. Um, And so I think that's what we're doing now um, with Collab. That's why we named it Collab, because it isn't about us stepping up and being in the limelight and getting all of the shine it's more about us stepping up and executing so that everyone in the whole city can be the shining light to guide everyone else around the country.
0: And Justin, I'll give you the last word. What's next for Atlanta's tech space and all of this?
4: Uh, What's next for Atlanta is, uh, I mean, my partners said it very elegantly, uh, eloquently. Uh, I think what's next is responding to the calls to action, right? I think, for, for so long people have asked well, what happens after the protest and you know the, the question is not a function of um, ideas it's not a you know it's not about that it's about those that are willing to execute those that are willing to, to place a to do a to do item an action item on their um, on their their to do their daily to dos every day something that they can do that's impactful that's either advocating that's that's um, making room or space for, um, to for change in their daily lives. Because that's what it's going to take. Um, for so long, we've, we've kind of attacked and just looked at a system and waited for it to change. Mm-hmm. But the only way to co- combat a system like racial inequality um, is to build another system. Like that's, that's what's required here. Um, and so we have to commit to dismantling, but we also have to commit to, to building something new and um, we're, we're excited at Collab to have folks join us um, in our journey and in our, our contribution to solving the problem. Um, and we're happy to partner with others as well.
0: Justin Dawkins, managing partner at Collab Capital and co-founder of Goody Nation. Barry Gibbons, managing director at Techstars and managing partner at Collab Capital. And Atlanta Tech entrepreneur Jewel Burke Solomon, also head of Google for Startups for the U.S. and managing partner at Collab Capital. Thank you all for taking the time. Thank you all for being a part of this very important conversation. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having
4: me.
5: Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Here's a question. What makes a productive protest? And what steps are being taken to equip a new generation of protesters and organizers with the tools they need? Well, we now turn to BLUE Institute, which stands for Build, Lead, Uplift, and Empower. It's a youth advocacy organization that trains young millennials of color to become electoral leaders. The group recently launched a new initiative focusing on community building for young organizers. Joining me now to discuss this is Ashley Robinson, principal of the Blue Institute. Ashley, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Rose. Glad to be here.
0: Well, first, I want to start by getting your thoughts. And as you reflect on this past weekend's events, the protests <clears throat> that erupted into something else, what would you take away from all of this?
1: This is a response to what Black people have been saying for a really, really long time. I think as a general matter, we're just tired. You've got traumatized communities who are sick and tired of being sick and tired, are tired of being afraid of police, tired of systemic racism. And they really want to see a change. And we also have this intergenerational um I'm not going to say it's a divide, but I think there's a different, there's different ways that generations approach this movement and some of the the questions that have now erupted from the most recent events. And we are all asking ourselves some really hard questions right now. And I think that's one reason why we began this initiative with Frontline Academy. We are just very tired. And I know that there are young people who are very scared, who are concerned, who are stressed very frustrated, and almost feel like they don't know what to do, where to go, and protest. And, you know, even when it moves into violent protest, I think is a a form of protest, and that's just where they know to go instead of, you know, thinking through how do we actually take that frustration and move it into some critical action.
0: Let's back up a little bit because we have been hearing for so long now, particularly Mm -hmm. with this generation, I'm going to say those that are, let's just say, 25 and and younger, that there is this disconnect with history. They hear about Dr. King. They hear about Malcolm X. They can at least still see Congressman John Lewis, Andy Mm -hmm. Young, Shirley Franklin, particularly I'm talking about Atlanta here, all those folks with ties to Atlanta, But they are generations, they're in their grandparents' generation, and for some, could be their great-grandparents' generation. So the notion of this disconnect also, through your lens, that plays a part in how you all structure and come up with the ways to reach this generation?
1: Yeah, we've got some very, very powerful, brilliant leaders in this city and who have really paved and charted a, a path for us forward. But I do think that there is a generational divide. We don't have a a Martin Luther King now. We don't have a Malcolm X. We've got fantastic leaders who are on the city and the state level and and across our country. But we want to see folks who are helping to lead the charge um, as we think about this movement and, and what that means for Black Lives Matter, what that means for a number of other issues that are so prevalent in within our country. And I, I think what those leaders have shown us is that you can't wait any longer. And I think that's what's so powerful, you know, just having the the gift of still being able to be with Congressman Lewis, to still see him, to still see him fighting. But seeing him fight back in the day when he was 25, um, and 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 alongside Dr. King and a number of our other leaders who have paved the way here in Atlanta Atlanta specifically. We need to see those same types of leaders today. And there's not a lot of them, I think, that are stepping up to the plate. And this was our opportunity. We know that it starts in a place that you can actually grab Mm -hmm. because these issues are so large. You don't really know how to tackle it outside of just getting angry and then joining a mob of other people who are as angry as you are. But when we talk about intentional action, And moving forward within your community and it starts within your house it starts with your circle of friends it starts within your your neighborhood your hoas wherever you are those are i think pieces that we can take that moves into a a much larger civic conversation about how do we treat each other how do we how do we lead with love and and selflessness and and all of the the adjectives that are so very important when we think about leadership
0: well, actually, I want to get your thoughts on this because I have talked to young people, teens,
1: mm-hmm, and I've mm-hmm.
0: asked them to, through their words, through their lens, I, I love to use that phrasing because I think it's so important, yeah. through their lens to tell me what the current movement is about. And, yeah. and for some of them, it's a long pause or it's honesty. And I love when they call me Miss Rose and they'll say, I don't really know Miss Rose. And yeah. some will have an answer law enforcement or the police. Mm-hmm. Some will say, you know, another topic, they'll say, well, there's still a lot of races in America. That's but right. do we have to start defining or helping them to at least try to define what a movement looks like for them and what those issues are important to them? Could be the issues with law enforcement or racism. I've had yeah. young kids ask me, why is my family poor? Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. When I worked in leader Abrams office while she was house minority leader, one thing we were very intentional about doing and I I am so blessed to have been able to have that opportunity is when we went to any community, anywhere across the state, we don't talk to folks about what we think their issue should be. Obviously in this progressive space, we can talk about women's choice. We can talk about immigration. We can talk about LGBTQIA rights. We can talk about all of these things, Medicaid expansion, whatever, but at the, the the deepest level we ask people what they care about first and i think that's where you have to start i think young people haven't experienced this level of of racism of we didn't go through the things that congressman lewis went through some of our elders have gone through we don't know we just haven't seen it and, it, and it's so it's a it's jarring I think to us mm-hmm. to, to be able to, to have to see that and we know that it is wrong and I think beyond anything we just want people to treat us right like I don't have to be killed because I was a, I was because you assumed I was stealing like I don't think theft <laughs> is a crime that is punishable by death and so I think at, at the very core of what all of these issues are it's just we want to have an, an equal say we want to have the same opportunities we want to be able to to love the same way we want to be able to make money and, and to, to be successful. And uh, young people, as, as we grow up, um, I'm 33, about to be 34 in the fall, and I'm on the older end, I think, of the millennial spectrum. <laughs> but um, I have a 19-year-old sister and I talk to her about these things. They are as angry and as upset and they're also experiencing some things that I, I certainly didn't. I got to graduate and go to prom, and you know didn't have to deal with a pandemic, and also didn't have to deal with you know as I got older in my my twenties, having to deal with police brutality and the killing of, of black men and black bodies and all of that. And so I think we are just f- trying to figure out what what is it that we have to do now. And I think time is up for us to just kind of sit back and and ask Ms. Rose what it is we got to do. I think we we just have to do something. And I think that something starts with doing something constructive and really figuring out, asking ourselves those hard questions is, what is it that's really bothering me? What are some of the things that, whether it's student loans, whether it's, you know, I'm not making enough money to help my family. I had a conversation with a young woman who's um, in her early 20s, and she's like the only breadwinner in her family right now, and in and, and a family of three with her mother and father. And you know, we, we're dealing with some pretty heavy stuff too. We we have to manage households and we have to, you know, make sure that we can come home alive um, from a long day's work. And so I think, you know, now is the time where we really have to step up and start to assume our rightful place in demanding what the constitution told us was a right. What we know was an unalienable right as a human being and, and just treating one another as such.
0: So when you talk about demanding what's right and if that's going to be through a protest you use the word constructive Mm -hmm. if you're going to define a constructive and productive protest through your lens and through the institute how do you all see what that should look like
1: i know that we can't teach everyone in a matter of three weeks how to start their path in organizing and movement building. But what we can do is respond to and this started with Ahmad mm-hmm. and um and in Brunswick. And because we had we had already previously done a training in Brunswick, we felt the best way for us to give back to that community is to do what we do best and that's to train. And so we wanted to equip young people and we have more than young people now. Like this is this is open to everyone. So we've had Folks from Brunswick join us. We've had folks from around the country, folks um, internationally join us. We have, we have over 300 registrants, but it starts with learning and, and really kind of implementing some of the more basic tools that you can consider when you start thinking about your action. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, during our first session, we, we hosted living rooms. And so we wanted to, to really kind of set the stage for what a conversation looked like. Why, why were we gathered together in, in this space right now? and we hosted living room conversations, which are Zoom breakouts. <laughs> but um, it was you know, about 10, 12 folks per group and we had some facilitators to really ask some difficult questions. And the first question that we, made, that we required was, how are you feeling? And people didn't think that that how are you feeling question would really kind of break them down in the way that, that it did, but mm-hmm. it really opened the door for um, very honest conversation amongst a diverse group of people. It was very emotional, um, but then we we move into these next two weeks of uh, uh, of action, and now we are equipping it, them with the tools, and we're we're training. And so this is like the the doing part. And so they leave us. We give them a plate essentially. Mm-hmm. So you come to our house, we we feed you, we talk to you, we love on you, and then we, you leave, and we and we give you a plate. And so that plate is, you know, we we ask them to to ask those hard questions within their intimate circles. We're we're going to talk a, a little bit about people. Mm-hmm. And you know, how do you gather your people together? How do you network? How do you what what is called in the organizing states relationally organize? And then how do you move that doing into action um, or practicing that into action by holding folks accountable? And so whether that's electoral wins or electoral considerations, whether it's, you know, just thinking about maybe a citizen's review board or thinking about ways that you can just rally your own people together. If you are a group of Wealthy white women, and you've got a lot of money, and you want to do something. Then maybe bundling money for causes like this is is your way to give. And so I think it's really equipping people to think about what are your own tools and 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 the things that kind of reside within your own wheelhouse, within your expertise, that you can use as an actionable item.
0: The voice here is Ashley Robinson, principal of the Blue Institute. It's a youth advocacy and leadership training organization. So with the Frontline Academy, is this specifically for Brunswick area young folks or you're going to actually expand this to other parts Man. of Georgia?
1: You know, this actually started for we for Brunswick. We this was to honor the life and legacy of Ahmad, and, and since that has grown and in a matter of just a few weeks. I think about two and a half weeks ago, I may have had this this idea and I was brushing my teeth and I called my colleague Jenny Casillo, who's our COO. And I said, I think this is something we need to do. At the very least, we just provide a space to, to train. And then it has since grown. We've gotten an overwhelming response from folks. We had over 100 participants on the line with us, but we, our registration numbers keep growing. And so we're over mm-hmm. 300 registrants now. And we're really excited about what this week is going to bring. But yeah, this is this did start for Brunswick um, and still is for Brunswick is for the state. But these are tools that folks from around the country can use in their own localities, in their own neighborhoods.
0: Is it challenging to present those tools because you're in a virtual setting? And then take our listeners through one of these tools that you all are are sharing.
1: Jenny and I thought very deeply about if I were, and and not like we're movement people. I mean, you ask Leader Abrams she, and she'll tell you, well, you are, you just don't really consider yourself one because you worked in a legislative space. <laughs> but you start through people and you start through connections. And that's when I think about the work that we did with at the Capitol, mm-hmm. I think about the work that I do kind of in my full-time job. And work that we do with with Blue Institute, it always starts with the connections that we have with people and who we already know within our space first to expand it. And so that's why we wanted to start our first curriculum session with people and how do you organize your people? And so we think about relational organizing as a tool. It's so incredibly important now because we're in this COVID election space. We're in this COVID world where we we can't knock on doors. We can't do you know, some of the traditional types of organizing that we're used to seeing. And mm-hmm. so we have to rely on people to do that for us. Um, and I think folks are willing to do it. And particularly now, they're willing to call their folks to the carpet And ask them to join a particular issue, um, help them, you know, raise awareness and consciousness via social media, help them raise money for particular issues and and movements. And, you know, I think the digital space is so incredibly powerful, not only because it's a free tool, Mm -hmm. but because it's a tool that you're able to use to get to your network. Um, And these are folks that I wouldn't be able to get to any of these folks if I didn't Already connect with people on the ground, you know, like folks who are running for office in Brunswick, like Cedric King, Commissioner Booker. And if I call Commissioner Booker, Akeem Baker, who was Ahmad's best friend, is commission, Commissioner Booker's nephew, mm-hmm. and so that's that's the connection. And so that's how I got to Akeem, and then you know, then I got to all of the the really the the group of really brilliant, passionate brothers that are working within that I Run with Mod campaign, and so it keeps growing that way.
0: Do you all even have a focus on working within the movement with other organizations that may have a different ideology or may have a different approach, although the actionable outcome is the same that everybody
1: wants? There was tension within the civil rights movement among Mm -hmm. folks. Do you address that? Absolutely. You can't get any good work done without getting different perspectives anyway. And so you have to. I mean, this isn't as glaring as like working across the aisle, but to some degree, it is. You know, you you have to get another perspective in order to get the whole picture
0: mm-hmm.
1: of what it is that you're looking to do, and 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 how you can best approach your work, um, whether it's a particular movement issue, what have you. So yeah, we, we definitely do talk about how do you have those types of conversations, and I think those types of connections are still very healthy to the movement because it also gives you another perspective. Because if you've got so many folks around you who are saying the same thing you're saying, you're you're really speaking to the choir, and we and we don't want to do that, which is why I think those living rooms were so important because it really offered different perspective. I mean, black folks had talked about you know white guilt and you know all of those things, but. Those are needed conversations that we think uh, that we need to have that we just aren't having enough of.
0: Does it include talking to what we call the old guard, the ones that we can Absolutely. still reach, the Congressman John Lewis or, or Ambassador Young and any other notable civil rights activists that are still around or Nona Clayton, mm-hmm. even the, the wave after them, uh, former Mayor Shirley Franklin and, and others. Right. Does that include bringing them into the conversation? Because we started this conversation talking about the disconnect with the generations.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think the old guard has so much to teach the, the new wave of, of leaders that um, it would be disrespectful not to include them in that conversation. Um, But also there's so much wisdom that resides within them that you you have to, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you see where we have been where we have gotten because of them. And so they must have done something right. <laughs> we aren't where we wanna be, but they they do have a recipe that they've gotta ca- carry down to us. And so it's certainly, an, I think an intergenerational conversation and we are very intentional about that in all of the work that we do. And so we must have those conversations. Those conversations are essential.
0: Do you have a conversation about interracial collaborations or allies? Mm-hmm. A lot of conversations has been made about some of the folks who willingly collaborated or just may have come in on their own to be part of the protest. Some of those groups have been accused of actually being agitators as opposed to being allies. Yeah. Do you have that conversation about how to maneuver through all of that?
1: Absolutely. You know, these aren't conversations that are are easy ones i participated in the one of the, i think the first rallies when all of the news broke about ahmad at the capitol and it was a it was a small group of folks there and there was a young white man that joined us and i think that may have been the only white brother that was in the group <laughs> it was about maybe 30 40 people and um at the end of that rally he said you know it's really been a blessing to 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 really just be here with you all alongside you we need more people like that who are probably asking themselves some really hard questions but know that they have to do something and in no way can they ever understand the uh, the plight of being a black person in america but in whatever way they can use their own privilege and 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 be able to use that privilege with integrity at all times. And I think that's what some folks are just have been, I think, a little scared to do. And so we we do have those hard conversations. Blue Institute, although we create spaces for young people of color because we just don't see enough of our folks who are in these electoral spaces and are doing this work and are creating all of that strategy, but we can't do any of the work that we do without really understanding the other side too. And so we do have young white people come to our our trainings. Now we do let them know, like we are going to have some really rough conversations and (laughs) just to let you know, but we welcome you to this space because we do need the different perspective and we we do need allies as well.
0: And finally, Ashley, as we wrap up this current training series about three weeks, but I know Mm -hmm. someone's saying, and I know, you know, there may just not be enough time. So after this, Will the young leaders be able to come back, seek more information? What further resources can y'all offer them?
1: Yeah, right now we're considering some opportunities to write op-eds when we hopefully get to some, some semblance of normalcy. We'd like to host a, a larger Blue Institute convening where young people can come together in a setting that is safe <laughs> and, um, and to talk about these, these issues for uh, over a, a, a number of days together and really create that sense of community um, and togetherness in person. So as we, I'm sure we may have to extend this training. Three weeks isn't enough, but we have been having a really good time so far. For those of you listening, I encourage you to join us. We have a DJ because we're young and hip and (laughs) we like music. But we have a DJ that, that kicks off our, our time together that's from 6 to 6.30. So if anything, if you just want to hear some good music, you can jump on at 6 o'clock. You know, we have captured all of that information so we can take the next step into what we know is going to be a change in our country. We know a change is a coming. And that change starts with young people. It starts with those who are angry and frustrated and now want to get off of their butts and do something. And so... This is our small attempt to allow folks to be able to do something alongside us.
0: Ashley Robinson is principal of the Blue Institute, a youth advocacy and training organization. You can find more information on the Frontline Academy on our website. Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you always, Rose. Have a good
0: one. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Knavey. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.